Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 How's that? Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Rough Trade East. My name is Matt Smith. I'm your host for this evening. I'm a music writer writing for Electronic Sound. And full confession, I've been a Mute fan since about 1989. We're here today to talk about Mute, a visual document. You've all got a copy. That's why you're here. We're going to talk about the visual legacy of Mute. To my right, no introduction necessary, Daniel Miller, founder... <laughs> and chairman of Mute. I'm a visual man. <laughs> Anton Corbin, filmmaker, photographer. Steve Claydon, visual artist and former member of Ad n x And Paul A. Taylor, Mute's creative director. But Daniel, let's start with you, appropriately. You've always said that you didn't want Mute to have a particular aesthetic. Why was that? Um... Because I, if I mean, I was I made a record. Warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Breaking glass in the underpass. See the breaking glass in the underpass. Warm leatherette. Warm leatherette. Warm. I would thought that if somebody told me what the artwork should be like, I wouldn't have liked that very much as a recording artist. So I'd never wanted to impose that on any of the artists that we work with. And also, um, I didn't want. I thought I wanted to have the. I always wanted the label to be in the background, right. you know, and the artist to be in the foreground. So, I think it's much more interesting for the artist to um, the recording artist to uh, to express their music through the visuals themselves or with the help of other people, right. rather than the record company imposing a style. I mean, other labels have done that in a very successful way. People like 4AD and Factory did. Amazing work. We just yep. and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, they do great work. It's just a different yeah. kind of philosophy, I suppose. Different approach. Yeah. So I suppose you mentioned your first record, Warm Leatherette. Mm -hmm. If I look at the kind of early mute releases, they kind of almost by accident had an aesthetic because of, I guess, the economy of, of being able to design them, print them, the work that you did with Simone Grant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. Simone was is, is a friend was at the time was a friend who was a graphic artist yep. and artist and um, when I wanted to make my uh, when I needed some artwork I went to her to, for some help because uh, I didn't have a clue I kind of knew what I wanted to look like yeah but I didn't really have a clue about how to put it together and I was a really bad letter setter <laughs> and uh, letter set was the way of letter set was an in incredible tool for the DIY labels in the in yeah. the days before kind of computer printing and so forth. And that's where the logo came from as well, was it not? Yeah, the logo came from Letraset. It was a 
um, an architectural device. Um, so if you did an architectural plan and you wanted to put a, a person in context of the mm -hmm. plan, you use the little man, the little walking man. person. And um, there are other versions of that as well. Right. So, Paul, I was going to ask you, in the context of, of the label and the logo have become kind of synonymous and one with another. How important is that label in the way that you go about designing things and you know, how precious is that logo to you in many ways? Well, I think it's, it's, it's become precious to the world, which is what I think is quite interesting about the approach and how it worked. And in a, in a different way to how Factory and 4AD kind of went about things of creating very much this and Rough Trade of creating this brand. Very, and it worked in the opposite way that Daniel's philosophy of doing that made Mute really strong as a brand without trying. It was very much uh, letting the ground kind of swell and people kind of find it and make it important. And incorporating it into the, into the artwork, it it's, it's carries through to this day. It's not about making Mute's stamp on it. No. It's having it there so that it's, it works with the design. Um, but not so it takes over. It's still very much about the artist. That's what we do. That's why we do this. We're about letting the artist visually um, and musically create things and show who they are. Yeah. So it's kind of quite simple in that way. We kind of just let it fit in there in a simplistic way. So if we kind of fast forward a little bit in the in the label's history, we get to one of the probably the most important early people to be involved in the label, which is Frank Toby and Fad Gadget.
Anton, I'd like to bring you in at this point, if that's okay, to talk about your work with with Fad Gadget. Started with the Incontinent album, which to me has got this kind of Victorian, grotesque, very dark imagery to it. Was that an intentional thing? Was that, and where did that come from? How involved was he, and how much influence did you have over that? Well, I, I just pressed the shutter on that one, I think. Uh, but um, it, it's interesting because I was, I remember, uh, I was in my dark room in Somerstown, which is a, was not a great part of London, but, um, and I had a phone in my dark room, which was, you know, landline. Um, so I picked up the phone and this person said, hello, it's uh, Frank Tovey here. I was like, hello. And he said, you might know me under the name Fed Gadget. And I said, uh, no, <laughs> because, um, because I didn't. <laughs> and, um, and then he invited me to you know, meet up for a cup of tea. And I got to know a bit more. And then we did, our f I think it must be our first shoot. And he had, he had this idea uh, about you know, the Punch and Judy character. And um, he also had the idea about the lettering. You know, so really, I really pressed the shutter. Uh, on that one, and I got a bit more involved later on, a bit with other Fat Catchit albums. Um, but he was a very creative force, and so were the people around him. Uh, but yeah, that, that's how that started. So I think there's a, a connection in my simple mind between some of the artwork that was done for the kind of Fat Gadget incontinent type of era and mm. the work, Steve, with Add to X, which I found quite almost aggressive, quite confrontational, quite playful in places. But if I think back to things like Metal Fingers in my body, quite, quite extreme in many ways. Um, thing to well, do? First of all, I mean, I think we were probably the direct beneficiaries of what you were talking about earlier in terms of, um, you know, a reservoir of people who were there to help you to, to realise, you know, the, the idea for us of a very 
a very visual extension of what, of what we thought we were doing, you know, um, with the music and, and trying to uh, advance the idea of kind of collage, really, but more, and I said this in the, in the little bit of blurb in the book, it's more about collision than collage, and it was very much about how one might bring a kind of a thing out of the past, like an analog synthesizer or a, or a, or an image, and then and then put it through this machine a, a little bit. And so it did have this sort of carnivalesque feel to it sometimes, or kind of Heath Robinson thing. Mm -hmm. And it was very, I mean, sometimes we play with the, with the affect and play with things that were were provocative, like the the slight um, like this this imagery for metal fingers with the kind of robot and slightly and the pornographic side that, that seemed to become a thing in itself and and all of this stuff sort of self-generated in many respects it, it was very um yeah like i said it was a kind of prosthetic of the of the, of the music i think it's interesting as well you, you talked about it being kind of an artist-led label but you are in your own right steve an artist so i'm, I'm sort of interested in both what the, what the artist, in the sense of the artist on the label, brings to the table in a creative process, but also how much influence you had as a as a visual artist on the way that those things looked. Um, it you know it, it really didn't occur to any of us at the time that there would be any that this was any other kind of pursuit. Um, and and Anne and Barry had been to art school as well, even though that uh, they weren't really making that much art at the time but we just considered to be to what we were doing was art anyway um of a sort um and maybe a more egalitarian form of it and and the uh, and the record cover itself you know it if you want to talk about it in general is really very much uh, very important to me anyway my my um my development as an artist started with record covers and and actually i think one of the most yeah like I remember looking at the Section 25 album cover when I was about 15 and just thinking, it's the best thing I've ever seen. And I, I wasn't so much influenced by contemporary art as I was by, by design and that kind of subculture, even countercultural thing that was going on with music then. Like, uh, yeah, you know, looking at RE Search magazine and thinking about Jim Fetus and, you know, think, you know all of these, or, and, you know, science fiction... Uh, Warm leatherette. <laughs> These things were all. These were all part of the, this sort of um, grist to to the mill, and it yeah. just seemed like, especially in Add Into X, it really felt like we were kind of cannibals, and we were just eating imagery and sound and, and just regurgitating it. Sometimes without a great deal of um, quality control. <laughs> <laughs> but that that quality control piece actually is is pretty important. So how? How f how much free reign did you have? Were you was lot, it all yeah. your your product or yeah. these guys interfering in what you? No, were that was do? it. We were like I said, we were we were very lucky, um, and I do feel for Paul because um, we had come in with all of these this stuff and a couple was nice, yeah, bags and bags <laughs> of it, and um, and we filtered through it and uh, and it, and it and it just happened. It it, it was almost like um, an invocation. And and like if the music was the sort of ritual chant, and then the things came into being, and and I mean you know they're they're funny, <laughs> they're funny as well. Uh, but but they have this sort of they they have their own intent, and they generated their own kind of symbolism and iconography, which became the band, and it just became an organism. And and in and the sensitivity of people like Paul to sort of see that through to its ultimate fruition as a thing the 
with the, some tracks on it and what have you was you know is 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 when you're with a good label that's that's when it all starts to be meaningful indeed so let's talk a little bit about Depeche Mode and in particular the design of the first few album sleeves which I personally find really intriguing the work that Brian Griffin brought to the table with those because here is kind of a self-styled almost electronic pop group kind of what what you wanted I guess but these sleeves are anything but pop they're kind of almost almost high art very very exquisite photography Vince Clark said to me a little while back that he couldn't really fathom why you would spend a thousand pounds I think was the figure he quoted on wrapping a swan in some cellophane <laughs> what, what was what was the brief what did you say to Brian or, or was there even a conversation or did, or did you were you as mystified as anyone when you saw what came back I, uh, there was no conversation. Um, we were introduced to Brian through a through a, a mutual friend, and um, I think we just said, "Well, have a go and see what you come up with," and that's what he came up with. <laughs> Later on in the relationship with Brian, there was a lot more discussion, right, of course, okay. when we got to know him better. But I mean, the first sleeve, the swan in the in the, which nobody, including he, has no clue what it. Means. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you tell us, but no, I don't. No. I, he, I mean, I saw him recently, and we were talking about it. He, he hasn't got a clue now. No, uh, <laughs> some seriously dark stuff going yeah. on there. I think. Really. Why don't you try unpacking it for us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't mind. You can if you want. But the, the the broken frame sleeve as well, which is a, a quite an iconic image in its yeah. own right. It, it feels like it's heading into slightly darker territory. Which I guess, Anton, let's pick up the Depeche Mode story from where you have had a, a major influence, I guess, on the direction of the way that they appear, the style, their releases, the videos. If I, I think back to Songs of Faith and Devotion and the tour around that, everything seemed to be all in sync with one another, the stage design, the videos that went with it, the record sleeves, their imagery. How do you get to that position with a band where you become so integral and so trusted to the way that they want to be? Yeah, I mean, it was um, a surprise to me too that we worked towards that, but it was a very organic kind of development. You know, I, as Daniel probably remember, I first did a photograph of Depeche Mode in 81 for a magazine, The New Enemy. Um, and um, then I was asked by Mute twice in the next few years to do that press pictures, and I, I turned them down because I thought they were kind of weedy. <laughs> uh, pop band, you know, and I, I was really into uh, Icon the Bunnyman, like more. <laughs> so, um, but then in '86, they asked me to do a video, and the only reason I did it was because the stipulation was it had to be done in America because they were on tour. And, I'd, you know, it was early days for me with the videos, and uh, I'd never done a video in America. So the only reason I said yes was because of the stipulation. <laughs> um, but that's so. Um, you know, it wasn't me really wanting to work with Depeche Mode, and then that was odd to see years later how it became so um, integrated, you know. Um, and the two you mentioned, I think I did everything, yeah, the videos and the stage and uh, record sleeve and all that, and even the design of the albums. But the difference between what Brian did, Brian Griffin, uh, and, and me, I think, is that when I thought of Depeche Mode, I wasn't thinking of so much of an electronic band that was called. I wanted to have a, a soulful thing, and I wanted to have a human touch to it. So my photography of my sleeves are very handmade, kind of almost, you know. And I think that that 
so, yeah, sort of human touch to it. That was. Um, I, I also think you you understood their their sense of humor as well, which I think was very important. Yeah, or well, I pretended at least, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and vice versa. But um, so I think that's that's how that mm. that started, and and somehow, you know, <coughs> although originally. I had fought uh, Depeche Mode. Their music changed just at the time that I started to meet them again. And I felt that uh, the videos, uh, you know, worked very well with their music, my, my little ideas I had. And it was also in the days that, you know, you got 15,000 pounds to do a video, 20,000 pounds, if I'm not mistaken, early on, the Super 8. Yeah, yeah. yeah I remember. And, and nobody really put a lot of pressure on you to come back with this. So it was very free. Mm. And uh, I was really able to, um, you know, I filmed myself. Um, so I, they became more like my little, my, my little films. And that was fantastic. And then you got them on MTV. And uh, of course, it all went wrong when they became popular. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> like with, uh, uh, with Violator, of course, the videos became very, very popular. Like I enjoyed the silence. And then there was more pressure on everything. still relatively you know easy I think I was enjoy the silence I, I all had that idea because what I do is I play records and being a foreigner I don't really listen much to the lyrics so I pick up on the obvious bits and um, it, it's much more about the melody or, or the sound of the tracks and I always had this feeling of somebody walking on his own with a deck chair but um, <laughs> that um, that didn't go down very well the first meeting had with Depeche. <laughs> they thought they had created the best song ever. <laughs> and um, they couldn't see that really going with this idea. <laughs> so they asked me to rethink. Um, but, but once you you know, listen to music and you have one idea, it's really difficult to come up with something totally different, at least for a Dutch guy like me. And um, uh, so I came back to the next meeting with the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they went, okay, well, just do it then. Yeah. <laughs> um, Warden down. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it was, it was um, great to see that video um, speak to so many people. Um, and then the Songs of Faith Devotion and later th there was much more pressure from Warner Brothers to bring in another video director. <laughs> so I, at some point, you know, the record company, well, no, not an, another Anton Corbin video. So it, it sort of went belly up in that sense. Just to clarify something, yeah, we licensed the Depeche Mode to Warner Brothers in America. Yeah, sorry, it was Mute Records, but, it was they, mute, but they listened to Warner Brothers. 
No, oh, no. <laughs> no, we didn't listen to Warner Brothers. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, yeah, that was, that was amazing. Um, but I, I don't have any of these sleeves here where I also designed it. And I uh, was talking about typeface early on, what you, what you did. I, I know really next to nothing about typeface, so I started to make my own typeface. Um, and that was usually painted, and then I somehow put it on the record sleeve. Uh, and that, again, that was a very sort of, you know, homemade kind of vibe. So, Paul, as a creative director at Mute, having someone like Anton working so harmoniously with the band, how, how does that make your job? Harmoniously by himself. <laughs> <laughs> In his vision. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's great working with Anton. You know, After all those years. <laughs> <laughs> Because, um, you know, the band has a trust in him. That's, that's the, the, the key point, and, and as we have over the years, we know that he's going to come up with something that is going to be unlike what you expect. You have a look at something, you listen to a song, you hear what you hear out of it, Anton hears something completely different. He visualises something completely different that you would never have imagined. I mean, where did Walking In My Shoes video come from? You know, that doesn't come into your head when you listen to that song. That's a very religious upbringing. Um, and so to have that, to have the uh, work with a band that then you have somebody that they have complete trust in, that they know they will look good, the photos will look good. They, you know, Depeche went through a period of doing TV shows where they didn't look great or didn't think they looked great, you know, it was fast at the time, whatever. Anton came, gave them an aesthetic, gave you, put, you know, put his stamp with them that made, they, they don't, didn't have to think about that as much. They didn't have to worry so much about potentially looking like idiots because they looked, they looked great. And there was this also this great humour going through it that sits really well with their sense of humour and which is what Anton kind of brings to it. Again, that's kind of, there throughout all of the, the sleeves, whatever you kind of like, you, you look at the Depeche stuff and it's, oh, it's dark and it's deep and it's like this kind of, this, this great jokes going through all of them, you know, and that's, it's a beautiful partnership. Yeah. So yeah, it, it makes things really easy from a label point of view when someone like Anton's involved. But maybe at the slightly more complicated end of things, you, you said at the beginning, or we talked at the beginning about Mute has no aesthetic, or you didn't want an aesthetic, you wanted an artist-led kind of approach, very egalitarian, I guess. But you're the creative director and you've got to kind of work within that. How does it, almost having an aesthetic of no aesthetic, how, how, do, you, how do you make it work? Well, it, it's, kind of, it, it's down to, the, to, to getting something that the band, that works for the, for the art. We want, with each album, we want it to hang together and to work as, as a piece. Because we've got to sell it. And I think that the philosophy that I have that comes from Daniel, which hopefully he's not going to say is completely wrong, is... Let's find out. The, <laughs> the artist will have an idea and they'll, they'll want to do something and it's our job to then make that work in the world so that, so that they feel comfortable with it, they feel that it expresses their music how they want to and they feel with it but we make it work in a commercial sense, if you like, not so much that it's commercial, but in whatever part of the the art, 
artistic world it needs to sit in, that we make it work on whatever formats, whatever kind of marketing, whatever kind of platform it needs to go, and it's us. That's where it becomes a real headache. It's true, you know, the, it's like, okay, that's great. Now our real job is to make translate that into the world and make it stretch everywhere without losing the heart that the, the artist brings. And, I mean, looking through the book, you can see the number of different, quite influential people that have worked over the years with Mute Anton, of course, Adrian Shaughnessy, Joe Dilworth, me company, all these different different people or artists or designers that you've worked with. How does that process work of, of finding, selecting, knowing what's going to work? Well, it's basically just sitting down with the artists and seeing what they want to do, being aware of what's going on, um, talking to them about who we feel would realise their vision, you know, which photographer in determining what that photographer's doing at that particular time. Trying to Also trying to get something that is not necessarily happening right there, but someone who's coming and maybe going to bring something to the future yeah. with it. Because it's hard trying to... Because you can look at something, we don't want to be, okay, well, we, wanna, we don't want to do this, what this photographer, this designer's done. So... The artist, the musician, is always going to bring a take to it that no one else has thought of, that no visual artist has thought of. So then it's getting that right combination of people to work with it. Um, And that, to be honest, it's there's such a you know a wealth of great people out there. It's it's never been that hard because the the germs of the idea, whether it's the tiniest small kind of part of you know, a, a, a visual that they like or the whole kind of thing is kind of there and it's just finding the right person to to work with. And so sort of we're, we're building on blocks all the time of all these different people that we've worked with over the years that, that help us get that. Does it help that a lot of the artists that have come through, if you look at the backgrounds, people like yourself, Steve, have an art background, Daniel, yourself as well. You obviously started out in art school. Does that help? Does that make that process easier because they're they're immediately in tune with a creative artist-led process it definitely helps on a lot of occasions that they can translate what they what they're trying to do what Mm -hmm. they would like to achieve yeah um not necessarily so much in terms of trying to get there because sometimes it's a lot of the time they want to stretch themselves and they're not actually wanting to feed into the work that they've done before. So they know what they want to do, but they don't know how to get there. And how much right of veto do you have? Do you ever look at something and go, don't see how this is working? Yeah. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes I think things develop in a way that doesn't necessarily work from the artist's point of view. From recording artist's point of view, mm-hmm. it's somehow the process hasn't quite got there. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of a stickler for kind of typefaces and where things are. In you know, I'm the main art of it. I'm very rarely interfere yeah. with, but sometimes I just think that lettering should be on the left hand side, not the right hand side. Maybe it should be a little bit bigger or a bit smaller. Um, but I mean, I can't say. I mean, as the process goes through, of course, we're, we're, we're critiquing it, you know, with Paul and the artist and me and whoever else is involved. We're critiquing it to, 
to kind of guide it to a, to a point where it, we all feel happy. But yeah. I can't think of any sleeve that I've really vetoed ever. I can think of a couple. Oh, yeah? <laughs> but I'm not going to mention them. Oh, come Aww. on. There was, was the uh, giraffe um, sleeve. The giraffe? Giraffes. Giraffe skull. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was... Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> This feels like a sort of private thing going on here. Okay. Uh, do you ever have artists that are just not engaged, that just sort of not disinterested, but maybe just don't don't bring as much to the table when it comes to the design? I think to, I think to pressure that in a way. I mean, it's not that they're disinterested. No. But they, I think they have this relationship with Anton. They just say so go. Over to you. Then, you know, Anton might get an album title and a bit of music, and then and then press. Press go and off yeah, they they're go. kind of lazy in that sense, uh, but <laughs> but it works. You know, yeah. they're, they're very happy to have this dedicated guy who comes up with something, and they can say if they like it or not. Right. And um, um, you know, the last album, I know it's not a mute, but does that matter? The, no, it's not very good. <laughs> 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 They still use the mute logo, though. <laughs> yeah, uh, really true. So yeah, it's great, great album. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so um, it's called Spirit, and uh, I, I initially said, well, I'm thinking of like Super 8 film. Go back to our little Super 8 films and flags and boots. You know, maybe I'll film it somewhere. And in in the end, I was just in my studio at night and started to cut out things and and used you know very grainy background to give it a feeling of film. And I showed it to them, and they were very disappointed. Um, because in their mind it had to be film. Yeah. Uh, then it fortunately grew on them because I was not going to do a film. But um, um, yeah, so so there is a reaction, you know, that might also not be immediately positive. But what I was going to say earlier, that it's it's great to have a label where the um, the head of the label is a creative person. You know, that that doesn't happen very often, and I think that's really special at Mute. Yeah. It means that it is about creativity. Mm. Someone described it in a blurb somewhere as an incubator for creativity, which was quite... Yeah, and that's, that's very far-sighted as well. You know, if you want longevity, you're not going to give yourself strict parameters to work around a particular model because it becomes stale. And that's what I thought about it. I mean, if, you're gonna, if you want something to really grow, then, then visually and creatively, then, then that's the best way of going about it as far as I could see can make out. I was going to say something even more inane than that as well. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it if you like. I was going to uh, explore the kind of the wider wider aspects of mute as well. So the wider labels, Nova Mute in particular, and Blast First, which to me feel like they're at kind of two very extreme ends of the labels approach. And it, it occurred to me there's a, a generic Nova Mute sleeve sat in front of Paul down here, which is in itself, techno and dance music almost exhibit A. <laughs> almost, almost demands an aesthetic in a way, because that's the, you're going to be flicking through a rack and you're going to want to find that, because that, you know that's a mark of quality. Mm. So it kind of almost, it, it doesn't seem to quite fit with the idea of a non-aesthetic aesthetic. But then if I contrast it with Blast First, which feels to me, in some of the stuff from Sav Penn and other people that have worked on that, a completely anything goes, you know, through anything at the wall. I guess that's a tribute to having a label that fosters creativity, that mm. you can do both things. Yeah. But how do you how do you balance that? Particularly with the Novamute stuff, which is very clinical 
Um, yeah, good question. Um, well, Novamute uh, was primarily, uh, as you say, it was a techno label, but pri primarily a 12-inch label. Um, we did end up making record, uh, albums, and all the albums had their own distinctive artwork. And I think, uh, Paul, you have to remind me, I think some of the 12-inches had their own artwork as well, or were they all house bags? No, it was house bags for a few years, and then they all had their individuals. Yeah. And I think it was part of that, maybe, and it's kind of a, the thing about techno that I like, one of the things I like is it's kind of, it's very functional, and it's very artistic at the same time. It's got this dual, it has to work on a certain level, as otherwise, you know, has to work on a dance floor, otherwise there's no point in it. But it's also, you know, because it's, it, the, it's kind of limit, has kind of quite strict limits musically, to work within those limits, you have to be very creative to be original and do something special, and that's what really appeals to me about it. So I suppose the sleeve a little bit, the uh, house bag a little bit reflects that. Um, and we, we just relaunched Novamute. I don't know if any of you guys know that. The two great 12 inches. That's really good. And uh, we're still using the same logo because we thought... Bring it know, back. We put it in a slightly different place on the sleeve. That's it's, a, it's a completely different design, Housebark. Yeah, sorry, it? completely different design, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but of course, in the, in the digital world, it's different because, you know, you have, you, you know the, that music is available on, you know, Spotify, Beatport, you know, all those places. And so... It's because the, the quantities of 12 inches that we make is very small. Mm -hmm. um, it just economically doesn't work to have a f separate artwork for each one. But of course, digitally, it does work. So if you look at this, the same releases digitally, then they will have full artwork, which also is reflected on the label of the right. 12 inch as well. Okay. Um, I was going to just another artist that for you, Anton, that you've worked with, it's in front of you here. There's a uh, the Boatman's Call era from Nick Cave, which here's an artist that is, is, to me, very dark, but somehow in the imagery that you put together for that album and the singles, somehow made him even darker. Somehow. It's all about the shadows. Well done. Oh, yeah, well well done. done. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I tend to bring the best out in people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I actually I did a color sleeve for Nick too for the Henry's Dream uh, I did, um, which was a, a photograph that was painted later and then I made a billboard of. Um, uh, but uh, the boatman's call, yeah, it was just a a very simple shoot we were going to do in the studio and it didn't work at all. So then I said to Nick, well, there's a nice wall outside, why don't we try outdoors? And he didn't want to, but we did in the end. And we just took a few pictures. And um, I think I sent Paul the um, contact sheets and one print, just as an example. And, and Nick came in and said, that's it. That's the picture. You don't need any more prints. So he just, the one that I selected was became the album sleeve. And then the singles were some, uh, I think, some pictures I did at his home with the piano or something. But... Um, yeah, that was dark. It was a dark period, and uh, we had been talking about um, uh, doing the last album as well. But in the end, it became a black sleeve. Uh, Sorry, that's my no. phone going off. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take that? That's the, the new Nova Mute release. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's available in a ringtone only. <laughs> So I've got two more questions, and then I think we'll open it up to... It's gone. <laughs> then we'll, we'll flick over to questions from the audience. So um, this one was the one that I was guided, maybe this might not go down so well. And this was about the fact that, Daniel, you don't do celebrations when it comes to the label. And yet, in its own way... this We don't do anniversaries. Anniversaries, that's right. Yeah, you do celebrations. Celebrations, but we don't do anniversaries. Not anniversaries. Yeah. And yet... The book itself feels like it's got the, the kind of the weightiness, the sumptuous quality we were talking about earlier that feels like some sort of anniversary present from the label. Not really. Um, there we go. And I mean, the idea of the me. book, you know, the idea was, you know, happened three or four years ago. It just coincidentally took a long time to get it all put together and so it just happens to come out this year, which is not a particular anniversary. So I don't know what, no. I don't know what, no, what you're talking about. Really. See, you did, you did say. <laughs> so there we go. And the last one before we move on to questions. Um, you mentioned this just a few moments ago when, you know, a number of people, it's probably not the right thing to say in a record store, of course, but people are interacting with music a lot more with digital streaming, where the role of design seems to have shrunk just like the kind of presence of a label, perhaps, down to this kind of two-by-two-centimetre square. How important is design now? And this, this ties in with the title of the book, which is 78 to the Future. I suppose I was looking to a future when it comes to music. How much of a role do you think that the great creativity that you bring to the table with the design of these work, how much is that going to still survive in the future? Well, you know, we still, a lot of... We, we still release everything on vinyl, and I think that's where we start from every time, is the vinyl artwork. And then, I mean, before digital, it had, still, it had to work on a CD, which is obviously a lot smaller. Um, it is important that it works when you have a kind of a, a page of albums, of sleeves on a computer screen, that the, the sleeve you do is, stands out, you know, and I think... So it, it, in, as always, the sleeve always had to stand out in some way, you know, when, in the sense when you were flicking through the record shelves, record racks, it, it had to somehow stand out. I mean, when I was buying albums, when I started buying albums, my route into the album was the artwork, because that was the only way you could, unless John Peel, you had it on John Peel, the only other route into the album was the artwork. So yeah. that's always had to be, it's always had to work on, the, on a kind of a retail level, shall we say. Yeah. 
and that level has changed over the years. I think the artwork is, is still just as important as it ever was. I think you have to think about more about how it's going to work in the context of in the digital uh, platform. And I think with um, with the new order with, with the new order album we did that uh, we worked, I mean, which was designed by Peter Saville. Um, that was a kind of an important part of that as well, and it worked, and it did work extremely well on yeah. that on, on digital platform. But you know, you, you, if you look, it, it, you tend to see lots of portrait shots, very straightforward, yeah. high tech, high glossy mm. portrait shots. shots, one after another, and they they kind of fade into the background. Mm -hmm. So you have to have something that sticks out, and uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's it becomes very a bolt, you know. Mm. There's yeah. very little. Um, Subtle stuff left left on record sleeves now, because yeah. it's um, all on that small format. That's a shame. It's a shame, but it's also well, it's a shame. It's a shame, but it's also a good limitation. You, you know, to work within those limits yeah, to, be, to have to make something that's really striking and unusual within those limits is a, is a challenge, I think. But also not letting that limit you in terms of that's not the only place. So you're you're designing something that that has to work in that area but then you're doing something that works on the vinyl sleeve that works on a post that works on a cd yeah. and it doesn't have to be exactly the same it needs to to mm -hmm. have that aesthetic for that release but work in all those different areas do that job in those different places when you just have one design that then you blow up or blow down that that's lazy anyway and it doesn't work it's it does a, it's a discredit to the to the artist and the, to the to the imagery so it's it's more it gives more of a challenge it's it's an evolution and i think if it, if things weren't evolving if if um anything in terms of art and music and and sleeves and stuff if the, those challenges weren't evolving and changing over the course of different years then we it would we'd find things less interesting and less barriers would be pushed and, and looked at would you think it's a healthy, healthy place to be I and think you're right. <laughs> no, but I think you're right in terms of thinking about. Uh, so there's a like if you want to talk musically, the, the kind of tempo and the cadence uh, that you have in in the music is now reflected in the in the in the very immediate way that we encounter things digitally, and what used to be this in incredible way, uh, as well as the music, arresting time and playing with things temporally. Now, uh, you're not really able to do that by kind of living with it, like the ritual of taking a thing out of the, of the sleeve and putting it on the, the record player, etc. That's kind of gone. But there is something interesting about that rapidity of imagery and that kind of blip kind of way of, of anticipating something. In, in, and, and you've got to really work to get your audience. But also you do have other, these other things, posters and billboards and, and other ways of... of of just playing with time, I think. I think that's the, the kind of way that music does it. If um, art just arrests you and it takes you somewhere else and it and it slows things down, takes you out of the sp the speed of the, the or the tempo of, of general activity in life. And and you know that's the job of of music and art, isn't it? I don't know exactly where I'm going with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a really really good place to have gotten to mm. in the conversation today because you're right. All of those things are absolutely correct. Thank you very much, everyone. A round of applause for our panellists this evening. Rough Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.